Dear Sugar is supported by The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? answering letters from teenagers today, talking about what it means to be a teenager, what it meant for us back in the day, what it means for kids today. What was Cheryl Strayed like as a teenager? What was your thing? Well, I grew up in a really small town in rural northern Minnesota, in McGregor, Minnesota. The town was 400 people. I lived 20 miles outside of town. Mm. And it's hard to say what I was like as a teenager, because I think like a lot of teenagers, I was like two people. I was the person I wanted my peers to think I was. And then I was the person who I knew myself to be inside. Mm -hmm. And they were at odds with each other. I was always a reader and ambitious and wanting to be a writer and having these big secret dreams for myself. But the way I lived my life as a teenager is yeah. I wanted people to love and accept me. Right. And so even I grew up poor, I, I didn't have like the cool clothes and things. So as soon as I could, as soon as I was 13, I got a job and from then on really tried to construct a persona of the kind of popular girl, you know. I could see And it. the school was so little. We're talking, but being a popular girl, when you go to such a small school, there aren't the cliques quite in the same way as there are at big city schools. Right. But, you know, my boyfriend was the captain of the football team and the captain of the basketball team. And I was a cheerleader and a track runner. But, you know, I really think of those years with a lot of sorrow. You know, I wasn't picked on or bullied as a teenager, but I had a different kind of sorrow. And that was that sorrow of living to be pleasing to others, to be accepted yeah. by others right. and, and not showing my true self not revealing the smart girl who lived inside of me. There was no place in my town for that girl. At least I didn't believe that. Right. What did you do as a teenager? Well, I was a weird hybrid. I uh, played soccer, so I was kind of a jock, but like a bad one, an inept one. It was like the perfect combination. I was certainly going to try to be a jock, but I was a bench warmer, which was its own weird kind of engineered humiliation. So I sort of was on the fringe and then... You know, there was a lot of pressure. The high school I went to in Palo Alto, California, which is now like the epicenter of Silicon Valley, but back in the 70s was kind of, you know, sort of a relatively sleepy university town. But it was incredibly academically ambitious because all the seeds of Xerox and IBM sure. and Apple were, you know, there was... A, it was still Stanford. It was still Stanford, yeah. exactly. And I was pretty good academically, but not like Ivy League good. So I carried around that kind of doubt of like, well, I'm in the AP classes, but I got a one on the test. You know what I mean? So there was this weird thing happening of from the outside while well, I played a sport. And oh, thank God, Allie Vickland, I love you still. I found an amazing girlfriend who was so sweet. And I think that saved me in a lot of ways that we just kept each other company and really were just, for the most part, very kind to one another. But inside, I felt pretty crushed by doubt almost all the time. 
You know, I, my central thing when I close my eyes and think about my teenage years is feeling humiliated in one way or another. I think a lot of people feel this way. And I've wondered about that. You know, is there a teenager out there who really is having a great life? I mean, obviously, there are teenagers who have great lives, lots of them. But how do they feel on the inside? You know, is this feeling that we're describing essentially part of what it means to be a teenager? Because it's such a a time of our lives when we were just beginning to know who we were going to become, mm -hmm. and yet we didn't have the inner resources. And it's sometimes the outer resources. You know, in McGregor, Minnesota, I kind of couldn't be who I was because th there wasn't the club of people who were like affirming that part of my being. You know, I had to wait until I went off into the world and could find those people who reflected my reality. And so it's, it, it is almost like I want to put a call out to the teenagers listening that, you know, if you are struggling, if you do identify with some of these letters we're about to share with you, mm -hmm. time passes. Right. Adolescence and teenage years at the time, you're feeling the most and have the least ability to reflect on it. Every bad event, every bad day, every possible slight or insult it feels huge. Right. That's why I think Flannery Connor says, you know, you learn everything you need to know as a writer between the ages of 12 and 17, because you are experiencing life in such a raw, pure way, and you're going to be reflecting on it in one way or another for the rest of your life. Absolutely. So here's a letter from a girl who calls herself lonely. Dear Sugar, I'm a junior at a great high school that I really love, but I'm terribly and hopelessly lonely. I don't have a single close friend out of the 300 people in my grade. I'm friendly with lots of people, but I can never seem to get to the next stage of friendship with anyone. I eat lunch by myself every day. I don't even try to find people to awkwardly sit with anymore. The last time I had close friends was in elementary school. I had some good friends in middle school from time to time. At the start of high school, I had one friend, but she abandoned me for more popular people. Since then, I've been on the outskirts of a certain friend group with people I kind of like, but I get more and more distant from them each term. I'm sick of not having a single person to talk to and confide in. I've been struggling with depression, and my mother is the only person I have on my side. I look at Facebook and see all these girls in my grade having fun together, while I just sit at home, cuddled up in bed, with my laptop and phone. It's been so long since I've had a friend. I'm afraid that this will only get worse as I get older. What do I do so I don't spend the rest of my life alone? I feel like I've tried everything, spending all this energy trying to be social with people and never getting anything in return. These are supposed to be the best years of my life in terms of close female friendships. I'm just so lost, sugar. Thanks. Lonely. Oh, oh. <laughs> lonely, my heart goes out to you. I know your feelings are, are absolutely real and deep, but I do want to first assure you before we dig into this situation, this letter, yeah. is that you aren't alone, that there are so many people out there who have been in your shoes and yeah. have had these feelings. You know, when I uh, read this letter, I flashed to an odd memory, a high school memory. My English teacher in, I don't know, ninth or 10th grade, one day started reading to us. And he started reading the opening chapters of The Catcher in the Rye. And uh, it was this moment of utter transformation for me of saying, oh, my God, that's me. And that's also somebody I want to hang out with. And that's like a friend of mine or I wish he was a friend of mine. And here's what 
Holden Caulfield was trying to say to me, and I, I heard it. Among other things, you'll find that you're not the first person who was ever confused and frightened and even sickened by human behavior. You're by no means alone on that score. You'll be excited and stimulated to know many, many men have been just as troubled morally and spiritually as you are right now. Happily, some of them kept records of their troubles. You'll learn from them if you want to. Just as someday, if you have something to offer, someone will learn something from you. It's a beautiful reciprocal arrangement, and it isn't education. It's history. It's poetry. Mm -hmm. That is why we turn to reading and to literature, is partly because it's the most powerful antidote, or among the most powerful, and I'll argue the most dependable antidote to loneliness. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, we still need friends. We need people in our lives. And when I came to that line about lonely, checking Facebook and feeling left out, I thought two things. One is that that's a universal feeling that we've all felt over time. It's not just about social media. You know, that feeling that other people are at the party that you're not invited to is a terrible feeling. Yeah. But lonely, I hope that this offers a little bit of consolation, that everyone feels that way. Right. On the other hand, it's also true that it sounds like you really don't have any friends. Close friends, yeah. This isn't just about this phenomenon that we all feel kind of excluded and we all want to be, you know, at the center of our friends' lives. This is about lonely, really struggling with connecting to her peers. Yeah. One of the crises of depression is that, you know, it's this anger that's turned inward, but it's also a time where you're so desperate to not be alone and lonely, and yet you feel completely unworthy of human company and in various ways unconsciously are engineering that. That's what's going on with the phone and the internet. Um, so we can say to her, hey, stop doing that to yourself. But the underlying thing is that this young woman is depressed. And, you know, that sort of advice is only takeable when you're feeling able and worthy and strong enough, I guess, within yourself to make that kind of an effort. That thing that you guarded so well, Cheryl, back in McGregor, Minnesota, that you felt insides lonely and troubled and unresolved, that's a lot of her thinking and feeling. She can't hide it. It's coming out of her. It's overwhelming her. And there is a place for you to be able to talk about that, whether it's a school counselor or somebody outside of a school setting. And please do that because those feelings are the essential problem. And one of the symptoms is it's very hard to find friendship. One of the things about growing up, and maybe Lonely is really confronting this in a deeper way at this moment in her life, is we, we do start to understand like who we are mm -hmm. and what our challenges are going to be. And I was really interested in the way that Lonely describes her background when it comes to you know her friendships over the years. And I think you're right, Steve, when you say, well, one of the things at play here is that she is depressed and it's hard to you know make friends when you're feeling so bad inside about not having friends. It becomes a sort of self-perpetuating mm -hmm. thing. On the other hand, you know, it does sound to me like lonely is not the most socially gregarious or adept for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You know, some people among us are just the kind of people who are always going to have a wide circle of friends and friends in every direction. And they're not going to feel awkward to walk up to a stranger and sit down and have lunch with them at the lunch table. Mm -hmm. And other people are going to find that a little bit harder to do. And so one bit of practical advice I would say to Lonely is it sounds like she's in the latter group. It sounds to me right. that, you know, social interactions, making those friendships is not coming naturally to her. It's not the easiest thing 
for her to do. Now, that doesn't mean that she can't succeed at it. It just means that maybe she needs to actually learn how to get more comfortable with her discomfort. And I think that one of the ways to do that, to sort of help that process, is join a group that forces you to connect with other people. You know, if things aren't going well in one environment, they can go beautifully in another. And I think that so many people do have that experience. You know, somebody's church group is where they're like the most popular kid. And at at school, nobody's talking to them. And so I challenge Lonely to find a group that is connected to your school, Mm -hmm. that forces you to engage with your peers. And so that you do maybe find some of those bonds with some of your schoolmates. And the other is to find some community that is not connected to your school so that you don't bring to it all of this baggage and sorrow right. that you do feel you know, in your school environment. One quick amendation to that is this letter's a lot about lonely, how bad you feel inside, but there are things you're passionate about that you're good at and that you, more importantly, really care about a lot. And the time you spend, uh, you know, with your phone or computer looking at Facebook, that's only reinforcing your unhappiness. If you want to use the Internet because it is a tool, use it as a way of finding and connecting to people who are interested in the same thing that you're interested in. Part of what expresses who you are is that you have particular interests and obsessions. And there are a bunch of other people who naturally have that. It would be much easier for you to interact with them if it's not just some random group, but the thing you're actually interested in. Because all those people are interested in the same thing and you don't have to sell your own inherent charm and how gregarious and all that stuff. You guys are all into the same thing. So think about what you're passionate about and find the places in the world, hopefully the real world, but also the cyber world, if that's where you spend time, where those people are hanging out. We're going to talk to a young woman who found in so many ways her tribe on the internet. Tavi Gevinson is the founder and editor-in-chief of Rookie, an online magazine for teen girls, but really for all of us. It's so brilliant. It's filled with art and good writing. Amazingly, Tavi is herself still a teenager. She's 19, and she's joining us from New York today, where she recently moved after finishing high school. And she's somebody who, at a really young age, I think she was 12 or 13, Mm -hmm. when through her blog, it was her portal into the rest of the world and really to a community who came to uh, admire and love her. So let's call Tavi. Let's do it. Hello. Hi, Tavi. This is Cheryl Strayed. Hi. Oh, my gosh. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve Almond is here, too. Hi, Tavi. I listen to you guys. I Okay, I like me and two of my friends were broken up with at the same time, and we've all been listening like every day. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, we're sorry to hear that you were broken up with. That's okay. I'm not the asker here. I didn't mean to derail. No, we we are happy to solve all of your problems on the phone. Yeah. yeah, but first you have to solve Lonely's problem. It's not so many years ago that you were in high school, and I'm just going to imagine struggling with some of the same stuff that, that our letter writer Lonely was. Yes. It is a very, very specific feeling. My best friend from childhood just graduated, and we were just talking about, like, if we didn't have each other, we would have felt so totally alone. So I I think in a way, like, you don't need, like, a huge social group of friends, but if you can find, like, your one or couple, like, safe people, like, that's a lot more valuable to me than what she talks about, like, people on Facebook 
looking like they're having fun together. Right. Like when I read Lonely's letter, I think it's at least a lot better to know that you feel this way than to like fake it Hmm. and be social even when you know it makes you feel more alone than Mm -hmm. if you really were just by yourself. Right. I mean, this question is seriously the one we get the most at Rookie. Hmm. I don't relate to anyone at my school. I don't know how to find the people I relate to. One thing that I noticed in this letter where she says, I'm afraid it will only get worse as I get older. What do I do so I don't spend the rest of my life alone? I do think one thing that hopefully is helpful is that, you know, high school is this crazy, weird, like, playpen like you're thrown in with all these other people and later in life you get to choose the people you're around more and more Mm -hmm. she also has this idea and i wonder tavi if it's something you hear from other young women that these teenage years are supposed to be the best years of my life in terms of close female friendships yeah you know this is reminding me so every month on rookie is a different theme and one was a world of our own and it was kind of about you know, a sort of hyperactive kind of female friendship that is somewhat specific to your teen years. And there were, of course, a bunch of comments from girls who were like, but what about me? Right. And I do think, like, the expectation that these should be the best years of your life in any way, but in this case, in terms of post-female friendship, those expectations come from, like, pop culture and things that don't apply to the majority of living people. One thing that makes me really excited about who this person will be friends with in the future is that she does seem to be discerning. And while I think your teen years are kind of designed for this very intense sort of female friendship, or they can be, that's not necessarily the stuff that ends up lasting, or those aren't necessarily the people who will stay in your life. I remember very distinctly when I was in high school, this idea that those are best the best years, years of your of life, life, which even when I was in high school, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. Um, I mean, they're pretty close to being the worst years of my life. Right. And um, I would yeah. say that that's true for most people. I do think that we need to just quash this idea. Yeah. It's not the truth. And, and I think that friendships, I mean, so many friendships during those high school years, they are born of a kind of fear or a need. Tavi, before you got on the phone, Steve and I were talking about our own teenage years and how so much of that time for us, and like most people, was really marked by a sense of anxiety about not being accepted or not being loved, not being in the cool Mm. crowd, you know? So when you do that, what you're performing is your whole, my whole personality, I'll speak for myself, was essentially a construction. And in my real life, that is to say the life I had from the age of 18 onward, that's when I began to actually have more authentic relationships, you know? And I hope Lonely will hear this. These aren't the best years of her life. This feeling of alienation in high school. It's not connected to whether she'll have friends in the future or not. She's going to have friends in the future. But what can she do now? Well, not to sound like promo, but we have so many times done stuff on like how to make friends, how to find your tribe. Yeah. And then also things that make you enjoy being alone. 
and sort of, you know, waiting out the period before you have more agency in the people you're surrounded by. I must say, things like that really helped me through my youth. I remember I subscribed to Ms. Magazine when I was a teenager and feeling connected to mm -hmm. something bigger than me. And I knew that I was going to go find that particular tribe once I grew up. It was also in the pages of Ms. Magazine that I first read. It was a profile of a writer. Mm -hmm. Joyce Carol Oates uh -huh. was profiled. And I just read that and was completely blown away. I was like, that's mm -hmm. what I want to do. And so I think that, that, you know, using lonely, reaching out for those resources, it's up to you to make yourself be less lonely in the world. Yeah. And um, there are things out there for you. And using the internet as a tool of connection rather than alienation. Um, and, you know, those are the choices we all have to make online every day. Am I going to look at things that make me feel bad about myself or am I going to seek out mm -hmm. things that make me feel good about myself? Something you said reminded me, though. At least three times in high school, we got emails at Rookie from girls who went to my school with questions like this, who I totally in school perceived as yeah. very sociable and very happy. Wow. You know, you feel like you're the only one who's lonely, but it, it's really, that's just not the case at all. Right. I was thinking as you guys were talking about this Haruki Murakami quote, he says, why do people have to be this lonely? What's the point of it all? Millions of people in this world, all of them yearning, looking to others to satisfy them, yet isolating themselves. Why was the earth put here just to nourish human loneliness? The crucial part of that passage, I think, is yet isolating themselves. And this really connects to what both of you guys have been saying. You have agency, lonely. You actually have agency in this matter. You have the capacity to rather than paying attention to what everybody else is doing, pay attention to your own life. And that's painful to do and more difficult and the reason people click onto Facebook and the rest of it. But that's actually the essential human task is to pay attention to your own life. And within that is the things you're passionate about. And that leads, I think, to the people who share those passions with whom you can have an organic connection, even when you're feeling quite down on yourself. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tavi, your work really does, I think, makes so many teenagers feel less lonely in the world. So thank you for that. And thanks for talking thank to us. Thank you for saying that and for having me and for doing this podcast. Uh, All right. Have a great day. See you soon. Bye. You too. Bye. What a lovely young woman. I do think that we can't overstate the power of understanding that even if this sorrow that lonely has isn't immediately alleviated by her going out and finding a great friend tomorrow, that part of what allows us to persevere is knowing that there are other people out there like us. So we wish you all the best, Lonely, and we would love to hear from you again if you care to, you know, write to us in, in another few months or whenever you feel like you've made some changes in your life. We'd love to hear about how that has turned out. Yeah. And even if things are still tough, we'll listen to that too. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. 
But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Sugar, I am a perfectionist, or at least I have been a perfectionist. I am sometimes not sure what I am anymore, and I don't know what to think about that. I'm a sophomore in college, but when I was in high school, I was a master of self-discipline. I was a varsity cross-country runner and trained the hardest of any girl on my team. I was valedictorian and made sure that I studied for each class to the best of my capabilities, even if that meant getting four hours of sleep each night. I was also anorexic and I am now only coming to terms with that fact. I ate fewer than 1,500 calories each day, I know, because I counted, even though I was running 40 miles per week. I grew up in a small town, and everyone constantly heaped praise on me. They told me and my parents how brilliant I was, how skinny I was, how fit I was. But since graduating high school, I've struggled with loss of my identity. I started to burn out last year and realized what I was doing was unsustainable. I gained a little weight and started running for fun instead of competing. I now get a mix of A's and B's and focus more on self-care. However, these changes don't feel as positive as they sound. The constant narrative in my head is that I've failed, peaked early, and that I'm not as good as my high school self. This past self feels like a shadow who follows me around, constantly reminding me of what I'm not. When I go home, I even imagine that my family and friends are judging me for letting myself go. It doesn't help that I go to an elite liberal arts women's college on a scholarship and find myself surrounded by girls who act and perform just as I did in high school. I can't go back to the level of discipline that I had in high school, but I also can't let go of that part of me. I'm in limbo. What can I do? How do I reconcile the changes I've gone through with my persistent desire to excel? Sincerely, followed by a shadow. I really relate to this letter. I think that that sort of public person I was Mm -hmm. in my teenage years was designed to get people to like me and approve of me. And I think that that's what followed by a shadow is speaking to here. Essentially, she was trying to get love and approval the easiest way she could. And that was to do everything quote unquote, perfectly, right. to meet everyone's needs when it came to what they expected of her physical appearance, her academic achievement, her athletic achievement, her ambition and willingness to work hard. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think we need to acknowledge is like some of these achievements are fantastic and they're going to serve her in her life. Right. Discipline's a good thing. That's right. But what we're up against here is how does she learn how to accept a more human therefore more complicated, therefore less perfect version of herself. That is who her authentic self is. You know, the foundational myth of the human arrangement, as far as I'm concerned, is one of them is I must be great to be loved. And this sets into motion for people who feel that hunger and who are able, tremendous ambition to be loved for what they can achieve, which is quite different actually from who they are. Mm -hmm. And This is an interesting sort of letter, Cheryl, because we get so many letters from people who are struggling with a bad decision or a bad circumstance or spiraled into doubt and so forth. This is a letter where somebody's doing, as far as I'm concerned, exactly what they should be doing. 
but they still don't feel okay about it. Mm -hmm. So this young woman followed. You have course corrected, and it's a beautiful thing to witness. And it has brought with it doubt, which is the old voice. But I must be great to be loved. Mm -hmm. I must be great to be loved. I must eat this many calories. I must run this many miles. I must bring back to the parents of the world this report card. And she recognizes, I mean, how self-reflective is this young woman. She recognizes that she's in another environment as a scholarship student at this elite college where she's surrounded by other people who are using that same standard. Yeah, who are under the same pressure as her. Right. I I think it's, you're right. I mean, she's really in this period of transition where she's growing from that old self, that old teenage self into her 20s, into this new era of her life that is more about self-definition and is less about societal approval. And when I was a teenager, I was also, I starved myself. I starved myself skinny. I was a really, really skinny teenager, and it didn't come naturally. It it came because I would eat two saltine crackers a day. Mm. And I got an enormous amount of attention for it, for being so thin. That was who I was as a teenager. And I, I did what followed did. I went off to college and pretty much immediately gained weight. I was no longer willing to eat two saltine crackers a day. Right. You know, I'm 5'7". I'm talking about the difference between weighing 105 pounds and 130 pounds. So I would go home to my little town and feel very self-conscious about the fact that now I was, you know, not the skinniest girl, which, you know, this was at at the time. And I think still it's like, oh, that is the highest value. You know, the the best thing you can be as as a woman is thin. And I was really afraid, just like followed. I was afraid, what are they thinking of me? Am I a disappointment? Are they saying behind my back, oh, she used to be so pretty, you know? Um, and what I finally realized followed, and I hope this will, will offer you some strength, is, you know, we all want to make people happy. We all want to make people think that we're great, or we're beautiful, or we're smart, or we're perfect and successful. And that desire, I think, never goes away. I still want people to think that. But the question to ask yourself, followed is at what cost? Right. You know, when we have these sort of crossroads in a life where you're saying, okay, I know what you expect of me. I know what will make you the happiest, but I am not willing to pay the price anymore of what that will require. Right. And so you're just followed in that moment where you're saying, yeah, those expectations are no longer going to be the things that rule me in all of my decisions. And so congratulations to you. Right. What a beautiful thing. And the great truth that rose out of this in my own life, when I made those decisions that were about being less, quote unquote, perfect, what happened is actually the right people loved me more. Right. Because they loved me for real reasons. Right. And, you know, I think as much as we all strive to be seen as perfect by others, there's really a false logic there. We don't like perfect people. We don't believe perfect people. Because we know that perfect people are not perfect. We know that they're hiding something or they're in some way sacrificing their humanity in order to appear like something that isn't quite human. Yeah. And let me say this as somebody who did grow up in a very ambitious family. You know, my parents met in Yale Medical School, you know, whatever. And they were intellectually ambitious because that was put on them by their parents. And that was put on them probably by their parents because they were immigrants. And there's an honest accounting. Everybody was doing the best they could. But the end result was that there was tremendous 
intellectual and academic ambition in my family. You know, I still am carrying that around. I still feel like a failure in certain core. I've, I've, I've learned to manage that disappointment as followed will, but it's still there. But I can remember in this high school where it was a big deal to be the best student and everybody was doing incredible work and everybody, the college season and who applied where and got in where, that was a huge drama of self-worth. And my older brother, who I think of, I think he's probably the smartest person I know. And by smart, I mean he is so curious about the world, so passionate about it, and so good at so many things. But it became a real tool of self-punishment for him. He and another kid were the top of their class, and they both went off to Harvard. And again, from the outside, Cheryl, we said, that person's golden. They're going to have a path through life. They're disciplined. They excel. My brother's friend took his own life, Yeah, I think his first year in college. And my brother, although he wound up getting a degree from a prestigious university and is brilliant and a doctor and all that, you know, dropped out of college because that he, he was profoundly unhappy. Yeah, And there's lots of reasons for that. But part of what the lesson was for me is that kind of ambition is a tool of self-punishment. But what follows experiencing right now, followed, listen up, you are finding greater happiness. You're conflicted about it, but you're actually finding a greater happiness. You're discovering who you are and being okay with esteeming not getting all straight A's and not being the top of the cross-country team and weighing too little. I mean, being anorexic, you cured yourself. And the cure was, I refuse to try to measure myself by an unrealistic and actually unhealthy standard of how much I weigh or how much I eat. And that's the cure. But the real illness is a kind of self-damaging perfectionism. So yeah. you've, you've started to cure yourself of that yeah. and you know continue on the same path. And if anybody, if, the, if somebody does say, or you think they're saying, you've let yourself go, say, yeah, join me. It's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Well, right. I, I think that's that's so true, Steve, that followed you have, you've done the hard thing where you've actually changed your behavior. You've changed your actions and you've changed a lot of the way you think about them. And now this is like the home stretch. Yep. You need to let go of that, that old idea that no longer serves you. You know, it maybe did serve you for a time in your life. You got to this place that you're at now and now something else is new and give way to that. And... Please remember, Followed, your capacity for discipline, if put in the service of what you authentically want to do because you're passionately curious about it, is going to serve you well. It's not going anywhere. That capacity to grind and do the work because it's something you genuinely want for yourself, you've developed. And that's terrific. That's to your benefit. It's not going anywhere. You still have that power. Just turn it in a direction that you're choosing rather than people around you are choosing for you. We know you can do it. Absolutely. Good luck. So we're going to talk about a letter now, Cheryl. You know, both of these first two letters we talked about um, were really largely about these women's internal states and feelings that they were trying to get a hold of and control. But this letter that we're about to hear is, is really more about fate and how we deal, especially as a teenager, with um, events, tragic events that are outside of our control, and then how do we try to regain control of our life. Right. Okay, I'll read the letter. Dear Sugars, when I was five years old, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. She was sick for a long time, and then when I was 13, she died. I'm now about to turn 16. As you can imagine, as you know, Cheryl, 
It changes a person deep inside to lose their mother, to lose that pillar of life in their world. I have never had a regular adolescence. I've been transformed by my mother's illness and death. I'm different than people my age. And every time I say this, I sound stuck up, but here it is. I believe that I have wisdom that goes beyond the scope of my age group's understanding of the world. Not because I am some marvelous being, but because I've already lived through pain on a level so deep, only a person who has felt similar pain could understand. And yet here is the problem. I often feel as if all of the wisdom I've accumulated is worthless in the face of other high schoolers. I don't enjoy going to parties, getting drunk, and giving blowjobs to the high and mighty boys who walk the halls of my school. Because of this, I'm seen as the prudish, shy, quiet young girl who no one wants to invite to the fun. I'm tired of not being asked to join the fun. There is this whole other girl in me that is funny and loves to dance, to hike and swim and do silly teenager stuff. I've just never been given the chance to let her out. Sugar, how do I give myself the chance? I want to stop being scared of having fun. I want to honor my mother because she always had fun and she was happy. I want to stop being so shy and serious all the time and be happy too, but I don't know how. I tell myself, you just have to do it. That's the only way things will change. But then I freeze up. How do I let myself out of my very own head? I want to be part of the fun, and I want people to see me, the whole person, serious and fun and dancing and happy and confused and free and broken, but healing. More than that, I want to enjoy myself. I feel so misunderstood because I would love to have a boyfriend. I don't have a problem with getting a little buzzed and having fun, but I also want to be careful. Perhaps the biggest problem is that I allow myself to think that other people's opinions and perceptions of me are right that I am the lame one, that I am the naive one, that all that I deeply know to be true is in fact a lie, because it's not what everyone else my age believes. Sugar, how do I change this? How can I allow myself to be young while not betraying this very old wisdom within me, simply for the sake of fitting in? Sincerely, old in a young place. Oh, Steve, I... Yeah, I thought about <laughs> you a lot when I read this one. I just old in a young place. First, I just want to say I'm so, so sorry you lost your mom. And really, as you say, your your whole adolescence was spent watching your mother die, you know, and those are things that many, many, many people have the luxury of, you know, not having to, to confront or witness until they're well into middle age, sometimes old age. I'm 46. And I still look around me. And most of my peers still have their parents. And so I, I absolutely relate on a deep level to this feeling you have that, you know, that you are alone among the sea of people who have absolutely no idea the deep sorrow that you feel and the profound loss that you've experienced. Just to bear witness with you in that fact, I, I want to extend that sisterhood, that sense that we are in the same tribe in this regard. As you probably know, I was a senior in college when my mom died. I was 22, a little older than you, but I still felt those exact feelings you feel. You know, people in their early 20s and their teens, they tend to not have a lot of perspective on life. Life hasn't gotten very serious for most of the people in that age group. And because of that, they can be 
a pretty rough group when it comes to trying to share your feelings and share your grief. And the advice that I would give you is don't do it. I really strongly encourage you to go and find a group, whether that be a grief group, whether that be online or preferably in person. And, you know, I think that support groups of all sorts, but maybe, you know, a support group for teens and people in their 20s, because, you know, you aren't alone. You might not look around your peer group and see a lot of people whose mothers have died or fathers have died, um, but there are so many people out there who feel your sorrow. And nobody's going to take your suffering away. It will always be sad that you lost your mom. And it will be a loss that you experience over and over again in your life. But it's also true that people can help lighten that load by just being there and nodding their heads and looking you in the eye and saying, I know what you mean when you speak your truth to them. Mm -hmm. So find that group. There's two letters here. One has to do with a young woman losing her mother and grieving that. But it's very quickly connected to feelings of, as we've talked about all show, feeling like an outsider, not being let in, not being known for her true self, not being given access to her joy. Mm-hmm. And what Cheryl's suggesting is exactly right. You you have to find other people who have dealt with the same kind of loss and who can help you feel less alone with it. And then you also need to realize that there are plenty of people who are ready to meet you where you are, who haven't necessarily experienced that loss. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't go through life saying, well, you haven't had this, and so it's impossible for us to ever really truly know one another. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that there are people right there in your high school and your community who they don't know the exact experience you've had, but they can hear what you have to say, and they can recognize the parts of joy and connection that are in you and Mm -hmm. affirm those. And, you know, when you're ready, you need to dispel yourself of the myth that you carry around such a heavy burden that nobody wants to go near you. That's an internal feeling that's very real, but it's not actually the external reality of your high school life. I would warrant that there are probably some kids in your high school who value people who are deeply thoughtful. They might be a little bit less accessible, but they're there. They exist. Yeah, no, and I agree with you, Stephen. It prompts me to sort of clarify what I meant when my first impulse was to tell old and young place to go find other people who have experienced profound loss like her. Mm -hmm. You know, I know when I was in that deep grief, I sort of just went to my friends and said, this terrible thing happened to me. I'm grieving deeply. And some of them were amazingly compassionate. And some of them completely botched the job and said horrible things. But none of them knew my experience. Right. And and that was painful. But I think if I had come to them and said, okay, this other group of people who know this experience, they're really the resource I'm drawing on to help me through this. And then I can go better into the world and have the different experiences you have. And this will help with, you know, as Steve says, this is two letters. One is, what do I do with this grief? My advice is talk to the right people. Right. But the other one is, how do I have those fun and happy teenage the years, you right. know? And and old and young plays, you have every right to have that. You know, I do want to say that I'm just going to speak on behalf of your mom what you already know to be true. is the greatest way that you can honor her life is to be happy in your own life, even while you grieve her. When I hear 
this young woman talk about her self-perception. She says, on the one hand, I have this dark, exalted wisdom that other people don't understand and are frightened of and isolates me. That's one version of herself. And then the other one is, actually, I'm the lame one. I'm the naive one. It's these two hyperbolic versions of the self that are both interestingly self-punishing and isolating. And, you know, those are real feeling states that she has. And we can't snap our fingers or even give her great advice and make them go away. But we can point out, you are neither one of those things. Somehow that feeling of arrogance has caused you to feel in some way that you're lame because you're not out there ready to party and partake of a kind of superficial culture of gratification and pleasure that just isn't appropriate for you at this moment in your life. But you're neither of those things. You're grieving. And I kind of learned this the hard way. When my mom died, I was a senior in college. I was living in a collective house in in St. Paul. About two days after her funeral, I went back to St. Paul. I was, you know, enrolled in college. I had to go back. And a month or so before, my housemates and I had planned to have this big house party. And to make it worse, this is a true story. It's so weird to look back because it just makes me like almost faint with sorrow, (laughs) is we had a theme to the party. And it was come dressed as your favorite dead person. Okay, so my favorite dead person is my mom. And my mom had just died like a week before. And I was young enough that I thought, I kind of felt like a little bit like old in a young place, like, hey, you know, I'm young. I know this terrible thing happened to me, but I'm still young. I want to party and I want to be part of the party and I don't want to exclude myself because of this sorrow. I don't want to be the gloomy girl over in the corner weeping. I'm alive. Yeah. So we went forward with the party and it was one of the most excruciating nights of my life and i'm partly to blame for that yeah because i shouldn't have been at the party and i also shouldn't have expected anyone at the party to be where i was because they weren't they were at a party right you know and, and part of growing up is figuring out like where to put things how to have appropriate expectations about who different people are going to be able to be for you yeah. and probably those fun teenagers at your school are by and large not going to be the group that is the greatest constellation to you. And yeah, you'll find some good friends in that, but those are the people you have fun with and other people. Not the people you grieve with. Right. I think that's so important. And I also think, you know, you should read Torch and Wild, Cheryl's books, because part of the lesson of those books, in particular Wild, is, look, you know, there's two lessons. One is the good stuff that was in your mother is actually inherited. It's part of your inheritance. It's Mm -hmm. inside of you. It was absorbed from the time you were one day old, one minute old. I think that's what immortality is, is the love that you transmit, especially a mother and daughter, is transmitted directly to your kids. And that love that you put in is something that never, it isn't destroyed. They enact it in their lives. But what happens when there's a sudden loss is a kind of delay And there's a difficult period. And, you know, the story of Wilde isn't my mother died and I figured out who I was. It's my mother died, I grieved, I had a period of self-destruction, and I went off in search of myself alone in the world without a mother, and I found myself. And it was arduous and difficult. But that's part of what allows you to write sugar and to be the person who your mother made you. But there's a break 
When there's a loss of this magnitude, there's a break, and it's a break that involves grieving and confusion and seeing the worlds in the kind of exaggerated ways that you're seeing them right now, old yeah. in a young place. And that's okay. That's the natural order of things. You have to know that your mom's love and joy for life is inside of you. Mm. It's not going to take shape immediately. You're not going to zip from the funeral home to the party. Then that's That's a setup for disaster. Mm-hmm. But Cheryl is also right. If you grieve and recognize what you're feeling as utterly ridiculously horrible and also perfectly natural and inevitable, eventually there is going to be a space for you to go to the party and enjoy life and embrace it as your mother did. You shouldn't do that because you have to honor her. You should do that because that's who she made you. Yeah. You know, Steve, this letter, Old in a Young Place, we've sort of moved as we as we work our way through this episode yeah. from the kind of more universal teenage feelings of loneliness and being an outsider and striving for perfection and having all these expectations placed on you. And then we came to this letter about this, you know, terrible loss. But I also want to speak to the aspects of this letter that I do think are not connected to grief. They're connected to being a teenager. And old in a young place says, well, you know, my peers think I'm a prude or they think this or they think that. And that to me, that's really about these universal fears we've been talking about this whole episode. And old in a young place, what I want to say is you get to define yourself. You can be silly when you want to be silly and you can be a prude when you want to be a prude and you can be, you know, doing what you want at those parties, choosing when to join the party or choosing when to stay home. And I think that that is a struggle that's about you and your becoming. And it is, it's home territory is adolescence. Yeah. And being a teenager, that's when we're feeling the most purely that sense of, well, but I'm either the greatest ever or I'm the most unworthy scum. We just see the world through these glasses that are like little prisms. And one is nirvana that we should be feeling all the time. And the other is utter hopeless despair, loneliness, perfectionism that's self-punishing. And in all the letters, in fact, there's this kind of duality. Like I say, the capital of that struggle is teenage years and adolescence. But I still, all of these letters resonated with me in the sense that I thought, I feel that way too. I, I manage it a little better. I got my public persona a little more polished. I've sanded off the edges, but I absolutely recognize this, this, and this. For that reason, it's really kind of beautiful. Like I love that these letters aren't polished and that they're full of contradictions that we can clearly see, but that still live inside us in a certain way. I mean, you know, there isn't a person out there listening who hasn't felt way beyond their teenage years that they're not at the party that they should be at, Mm. that there's fun out there being had, that they're lazy and they're not disciplined and they've let themselves go, that this should be the greatest years of their lives, but they're on the downslope. Man, that's... That's the unpleasant side of the human arrangement. Yeah. But the good news is, is I think those feelings are most intense in those teenage years. Right. Which is the reason that we did this episode, really. We wanted to speak to our teen listeners directly. The other side of that is that so many people, Cheryl, look back on their teenage years. And in a weird way, it's when they were in the most pain, but it's also when they were the most alive. We might not have the slick language for it, haven't even developed our defenses, but all these letters are just luminous with how they are feeling in this moment. And 
if that's part of what I think, that's part of what our job is on earth, is to really feel intensely what we're feeling in the moment, that's it. Pay attention. And it's very painful to do that when you're in a lot of pain, but it also means you're really alive. And all these letter writers are really alive. They are. You know, we talk about teenagers as if they're a separate species. And what I found in contemplating these letters and, and others that we've received that we couldn't didn't have time to include on this show is how connected we are. Yeah. And so, you, you know, I think there's no better way uh, to say it than to say, you guys really aren't so long. You know, welcome to the human race, our teenage friends. Yeah. We're with you in the struggle, we're with you in the sorrow, and we're with you in the beauty. That's beautiful. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR. We are produced and edited by Lisa Tobin. A lot of people don't realize this. Lisa is only 15. That's right. And it is remarkable what she's done already she's a, in her she's life. She's a girl wonder. She's a girl wonder. Uh, this episode was recorded at Cybersound in Boston. We want to thank Perry Geyer and Rob Whitaker for working the boards and also to tell people, whoever you are, but especially our teenage listeners, send letters to dearsugarradio at gmail.com and remember to listen and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks. Hi, I'm Erica Lance. Clearly, you like Dear Sugar enough to listen all the way to the end. So I think you might like this podcast I produce, Kind World. Kind World tells deeply personal stories about the pivotal moments in our lives. She called me one day and she says, why are you choosing to live in our grief? And I said, I'm not. I'm choosing to live in your love. All of those women were witness to the darkest and probably most intimate moment of my life. And they gave me a sliver of light. I talked to all kinds of people about times when they felt scared or alone or overwhelmed and how they got through it with the help of others. I even thought I was a little crazy. But then I'm like, wait, I could do anything I want. I could raise a million dollars if I want to. I could cure this disease. I think that he bypassed all that bullshit and just said, I see a human being who needs my help and I'm going to help him. Head over to WBUR.org slash kindworld or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks.